so a week ago, I flew down to Texas for a secret fundraiser. You might be wondering what a secret fundraiser is. It wasn't a secret fundraiser because of the topic or the mission. The fundraiser was secret because of the people who were going to be in the room. And when those groups of people are gathered together, there's always an inherent danger and risk when they are gathered together. The mission of the organization is to place a million Bibles in a particular country of which I'm not going to say the name because it's illegal to be a Christian in that country and it's at the penalty of death that you have a Bible in your possession. In spite of the persecution and in spite of the threat, the faith is growing the fastest in this country, faster than it is anywhere else in the world. Year over year, around 20% of church growth within that country, in spite of the fact of that they are under the thumb of their governments and they do so at the risk of their life. So I was invited to be a keynote speaker and before I'm going to give my, my speech, I'm humbled by the parade of hands that I meet on the way to what I'm about to do. There's the hand of the worship leader that I shake who shares with me that his father was martyred in that country for his faith. The next person that I meet is someone who has put printing presses in that country, strategically locating them as close to possible to a police station because the police would never believe that a printing press would be that close to a police headquarters. Then I meet another person who's considered to be the Billy Graham of that country, who when he was a student stood up and yelled hatred to America and now from afar he broadcasts, broadcasts through satellite TV the love and the justice of Jesus Christ. And then there's the pictures. There's the pictures of somebody receiving their Bible for the first time. There's the pictures of somebody who's willing to strap on their back a 100-pound makeshift backpack that contains mostly Bibles as they're willing to walk through a multi-day journey through the wilderness in order to be able to deliver the Bible to safety within the country in order for it to be distributed. The reason I tell you all of this is that you and I live with such privilege and freedom that this book might be the kind of thing that you take for granted. It might be the kind of thing that lives on your shelf. It might be the kind of thing that for you, it is about tradition. It's about how you were raised. It was, it's something that might be meaningful to the way that we've organized our society. You need to understand that if you live in that country, life is on the razor edge of faith and that the Bible is the most dangerous thing within your possession. And so as we go through this series called Quest and we draw towards the end, We've talked about a dream of putting a Bible in every hand and God's story in every heart. We've talked about all these dimensions of God's story and we're getting you through the story, but I would be remiss if I say the goal really isn't to get you through the story, it's to get the story into you. 
And what I hope that you're going to see in this last segment of this beautiful dream that it says that God is making all things new, drawn from one of the most important lines from the very end of the book of Revelation. When you look at the latter half of the first century, out of which most of the writings that we're going to be looking at come from the latter part of the first century, the context out of which that promise of making all things new, the context for that promise is primarily to Christians, what we would call Christians, what they probably refer to as followers of the way, people for whom they experienced intense and repeated persecution for what they believe. And so that promise of making all things new was not given in a vacuum, but it was given to a group of people in need. And so I want to put the image of a gilded edged Bible on the screen and just ask you, is church the kind of thing you decide whether to attend, whether you feel like it or not? Is the Bible maybe something that you dabble in every once in a while? Or is your faith really about salvation and is the word of God really his message for you? Because here's the thing. This book in the foreign country I described before is something you either cherish or you disavow and there is no in-between. And I can't help but wonder if you and I here in the United States are just on cruise control with our faith in such a way that we don't really see it in the way that the world experiences it and that history has proclaimed it. And in fact, specifically, as we look at the, the reading that we're going to get into today, which is called the book of Hebrews. So it's written to, we don't know a lot about it, but it's written to Jewish Christians in that latter part of the first century. And they're experiencing this threat, this persecution, this burnout. Maybe they're afraid that they're gonna give up meeting together, as many have done. And you might think that what they need is a pat on the back or they just need a little bit of encouragement or they need a pep talk. That is not what they receive. That the book of Hebrews is some of the most robust theology. If you were to look at the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews, it's the most complicated of Greek. It's the most beautiful and difficult to try to translate from Greek into English. And these are the different topics that you would stumble across as you walk through the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews. It talks about the supremacy of Jesus as Lord over all of creation, that Jesus is God's true son that Jesus is the only Savior, he's our great high priest, he's the one in sufficient sacrifice, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's eternal promises going back to the dawn of creation. And after 10 chapters of wandering through the maze of the mystery of all of those things, at the end of chapter 10, we get to this unbelievable, just explosive two verses. Verse 39 of chapter 10 and the first verse of chapter 11. And would you be willing to say this out loud with me? Let's say it in unison. But we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and so are saved. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, 
and the practice of needs not seen. One of the things that just these two short verses tell us is that every single one of us is faced with a choice and that that choice is an incredible contrast of what our future is. The choice that we have before us is that we will either shrink back when our faith is tested or we will have true faith. And that the contrast is either we will be lost or we will be rescued. It's interesting that most of the people that I talk with, uh, they, they can talk about their religious experience, they can talk about their spiritual upbringing, they can talk about their journey, they can talk about, certainly you talk very freely about what you like and what you don't like at church and what you think could be better and all of those different things, easy to do. Do you know what is hard for the average Christian that I meet today? What is faith to you? And to have an actual, coherent, direct answer to that question. And what happens in this section here is that we find out what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it is the practice of things unseen. In other words, there are these four attributes that we learn about faith from a group of people who really were relying upon their faith, that it is substantial. The Greek word there is hypostasis. It's a chemistry term. It's, it's the sediment. It is the most weighty and significant thing about it. The faith is substantial. It's not just, hey, what you want to believe, what I want to believe is okay. It is, the, it is the most core and weightiest thing about you. Faith is also hopeful. In other words, it's something you lean into. It is something you long for. It is something you anticipate. It is something that is to come. Faith is also practiced. In other words, it is exercised. It is a muscle. Faith is a verb. Faith is, you might even say it'd be better to be say that it's not having faith, it's that you're faithing, because it's about you're relying on something, you're trusting something, and you have to practice that repeatedly, and that finally faith is unseen. The opposite of faith is not doubt, the opposite of faith is sight. The Bible talks about how we walk by faith and not by sight. What on earth does that mean? And the neighboring town where we used to live in California was Huntington Beach, and there was a family from that community that had a really amazing story with their, their son. Their son was born with what they thought was an eye problem that turned out to be eye cancer. And so right at the birth, they had to remove one of his eyes. And so this little boy grew up his whole life only having one eye and that never stopped him from doing whatever he really thought that he could do. But when this boy by the name of Jake Olson turned 12, the doctors discovered that his other eye had a recurrence of cancer and that they were going to have to remove his other eye. And so all of a sudden this 12-year-old boy was going to go from being able to see to living the rest of his life in blindness. We met Jake and his family when they came to our church right after the surgery of his blindness. And he shared with us his story and he shared with us his faith. One of the great things that Jake got to do when people heard some boosters from the University of Southern California, which was Jake's favorite college football program, 
they, they decided to, and I'll show you a picture of this here on the screen with Pete Carroll, and you can see his beaming sister there. They decided to have him come and to help to run a practice and to be there for a game. These were going to be some of his last days of being able to see. So some of the last images that he got was of a signature memory of his favorite team. And then he went blind. And then his faith and his fame continued to grow. After that, Jake partnered up to write a book. And he went from place to place to share his story about, yes, he lost his sight, but he didn't lose his God. And that, in fact, the greatest thing in life is something that none of us can see. As the Scriptures remind us, that no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, He dwells within us, and His love is made complete in us. And so Jake began to live his life as a teenager, but now having lost his ability to see. Do you want to know what Jake's, one of his favorite activities was as a teenager? The game of golf. Can you imagine being a caddy and having to line him up perfectly and get the ball right between him. Did you know that Jake could regularly beat 100? Even though he couldn't see. Some of you are giving up the game of golf right now, (laughs) just knowing that. He was a really good golfer. But as Jake was finishing up high school, he got to the point where he wanted to go to college, and golf was fun, but that wasn't his true passion. You know what his true passion was. He loved the game of football. He wanted to play the game of football. And nobody could tell Jake that he couldn't do something. You know, there's one position where you don't really need to see to be good at it. It's this position right here, the long snapper. That you do the same thing over and over and over again. And sure enough, with this next image here, Jake got to his dream And he made the team, even got to hike a ball and a game, and you can go on YouTube and see his first point after attempt if you want to. Faith is the substance of things longed for and the practice of things not seen. That's what faith is. And so when we talk about faith, sometimes what we say about faith isn't what the Bible means that faith really is. There's a philosopher by the name of Michael Novak who says we use the word faith in such a kind of slippery fashion that it's kind of become, you know, emptied of its meaning. And so he says we have three things. We have private convictions, we have public convictions, and we have core convictions. Your public convictions are what you say you believe. Your private convictions are what you think you believe. Your core convictions are what you really really believe, which are revealed by the way that you live your life. You and I will never violate our core convictions. We will always do what we really believe. And so people say, no, I really believed it. I just didn't do it. Nope, that's just, it was a public conviction, or maybe it was a private conviction, but it wasn't your core conviction. You'll always do what you believe at your core. And so there has to be 
an object of your trust, of your faith. You can't just have faith in general. You have to put your faith, your confidence, your trust in someone or something. Right now, you were having faith in the pew that you were sitting in. You were trusting that pew. You were putting your faith there. And the question is, where is your faith? And that the way that the book of Hebrews answers that question is by giving you a hall of fame. It is like walking you into a museum of the Bible and walking you through all of the great people and all of their faith, all of the paragons of the people who have gone before us. And so the, the, the book of Hebrews has this unbelievably poetic expression of saying, you know, kind of by faith, by faith Abel offered his sacrifice to God. That by faith Enoch lived his life knowing that he would never taste death. That by faith Noah built the ark even though people mocked him. That by faith Abraham went to a land that he didn't know. And then in verse thing, after marching us through the early parts of our faith's history, it says this in verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things they promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. I can't get there, God. But I'm still trusting that I'm going in the right direction and that this is how I am supposed to live. That you're still there. And so the, the rest of the, the book of Hebrews is unbelievable and how it marches us through just some of not only the people but the history of it. In verse 29 it says this, by faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land but when the Egyptians tried to do so they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell and after the army marched around them for seven days, by faith the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah about David and Samuel and about the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength. And then in verse 39, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for what? For us, so that only together with us would they be made, and a better translation is the word complete, be made whole. It's like there were these little breadcrumbs that people throughout history lived with and said, I believe this, I'm going to live by this, I'm going to trust this, and that promise after promise after promise was unfolded, and, and they held to that, and they clung fast to it as God held them. One more story, a story of that country of which it's dangerous to live by the faith of Jesus Christ. A true story of a young man who became a Christian and had a copy of his own Bible, but got caught with it. And someone ratted him out and he was brought up on charges and he was taken to court. Now, because this young man was really good at his job, 
because this young man was a really good citizen, because this young man was a really good neighbor, because this young man was known to be generous and kind and helpful, and everybody admired and enjoyed and liked this young man. They're in the courtroom, and the Bible is there, and the judge decides to offer leniency, and he is not killed for having a Bible, but is punished, has to pay a fine, and then is able to go home. But they confiscated his Bible, and the judge confiscated his Bible, and he put it in his office, and it sat there for a while. And every once in a while, he would see that Bible out of the corner of his eyes. And every once in a while, he would wonder what was in that Bible. And one day, when he had a longer break between different court sessions, he gingerly grabbed the Bible, and he opened it up, and he started to flip through it. And as he was flipping through it, he noticed that the pages were highlighted and there were notes written in it. And so he walked through the Bible and he read the highlighted parts. And he lost track of time and when he finished reading the highlighted parts, he fell to his knees. And the judge believed. He had to give up his judgeship because he knew he couldn't be a judge anymore because you can't be a judge in this country without being corrupt. And right now that judge helps to lead house churches for followers of Jesus who live on the precipice of life and death because of whom they trust. So here's my question for you. If somebody read your Bible, would they find anything highlighted in it? If somebody were to read the Bible that is your life, would they find any evidence of the promises that have been entrusted to you? I want to live my life in such a way in the fact that it doesn't make any sense without Jesus. I want to live my life in such a way that people experience the fullness of not only common grace, but the special grace that is Jesus. You and I have a choice. A choice as the heat turns up in our own lives, in our own society, whether it's the threat of persecution or suffering, whatever it is, but that choice is there, and the choice is binary. Will you shrink back or will you have faith? And the evidence of that trust and the result of it is a contrast of either getting lost or being found. And I believe that what our society needs is not more Christian platitudes or simple slogans, but 
the core, robust gospel of an all-sufficient Jesus Christ who is supreme over all of creation, who is the only Savior, our high priest, and the one who is the embodiment and the fulfillment of all of the promises we've been talking about this year. And so I want to end where we began today. I want to put these two short verses up on the screen. And once again, I want you to say them in unison with me. But maybe you will say it now with a deeper conviction, a core conviction of what it is that you really believe. But we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and so are saved. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the practice of things not seen. And so Father, we know that people around the world are experiencing a very different reality from the freedom, the privilege, the ease at which we are able to come to this church on this morning. And because of that freedom, how easy it is for us to take for granted what we have, whom we serve. And so God, will you help us to cherish our Bibles instead of disavowing them or ignoring them? Will you rekindle the dream within us? that your promise is secure of making all things new, that that promise was true for people who were persecuted long ago and that no shallow platitudes will do. Help us, God, to not shrink back, but to put our full weight and trust in you. Make us more substantial and hope-filled and help us to exercise our faith and to lean into the unseen and the mystery of who you really are. Father, we know that we walk by faith and not by sight. And one day will you enable us to be a part of your hall of fame, to go the distance and have a faith that lasts, and that people could look at our lives and our Bibles both, and that if we were caught, they would see the highlights of your grace written all over us. Instill within us the choice. Help us to see the contrast. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.